0: Welcome to the Next Step Now Podcast, where resilience and redemption meet. Join hosts Melinda Doolittle, a multifaceted artist and self-described joy dealer, and David Lawson, a successful small business owner and returned citizen, as they bring you captivating stories of hope and overcoming. Get ready to break free from the past and unlock your boundless potential. Are you ready for personal transformation? Then buckle up and take your next step now. Hey, this is David
1: from the Next Step Now podcast. And if you struggle with addiction of any kind, this episode is for you. If you know anyone who struggles with an addiction, this episode is for them and you need to make sure you get them to listen to it. Melinda and I had a chance to sit down with our good friend, JC. JC, man, his Willingness to be so vulnerable and open was inspiring, is inspiring. That's just the kind of man that he is. He talks about how his struggle with addiction led him to prison and has led him through different rehab programs, but I could not be more proud of my friend for where he is today. Hey, check out this episode of the Next Step Now podcast. You may want to grab a tissue. But you definitely want to listen with an open heart and be ready to hear what God has to say to you through our conversation with JC. So there are guys listening, men and women listening across the country to this podcast in their cell or in their dorm. And I just want them to know, I think more people will be able to relate to your story than some of the others we've talked about so far. Addiction is a tough beast and addiction has played a a role in your life. Is addiction something that's always played a big role in your life? Or when did that
2: start? Um, I didn't realize at the time that it had played a big role in my life when I was younger. Um, I had got into a little bit of a, an accident and, and was put on pain medication. And um, my mom at the time was an anesthesiologist. And when I started getting weaned off the, the pain meds, it was kind of the time where she was in the boat on losing her license. Um, she had started forging fake prescriptions. She got diagnosed with cervical cancer. Um, it was a really, really big downhill spiral from there. And I had grown up in in a rough household where just coping mechanisms were always go above and beyond. Like, play sports like your life depended on it. You know, go to play music like your life depended on it. These little things, like, those became addictions for me. Um, now, at the time, they were fairly healthy addictions mm-hmm. um, until this doctor started getting me weaned off these medications. And instead of my mom letting that happen, um, she started feeding them to me like they were Skittles. And she's like, you don't have to get off of them. She's like, you're going to need these. So slowly but surely, she kept it going, and one day it just stopped. Um, There was nothing left. I was 14 years old, and I was dope sick. And she knew that I had a fake ID and had friends, and um, it goes a lot deeper than, than all this, but... But long story short, she came to me and said, listen, if you don't want to feel this way, I'm going to call in a prescription to the pharmacy and I'm going to tell them that you are a cancer patient visiting from out of town, that they've lost your luggage at the airport and that you need this medication filled stat. And she bought a track phone, called in from a different area code and knew every bit of lingo, um, called it in under the name on the fake ID. And I went into that pharmacy and I filled the script at 14. And we did that up and down the East Coast for years. Um wow. obviously, you know, with with addiction things never never end up the way they start. You know, unfortunately, I I grew up in a rough household, and that was just my way of coping with everything that was going on. You know, it, it's just you don't realize it until it's all taken away from you. And when I finally finally got arrested and, you know, everything hit the fan, I was in a medical holding cell. And by the grace of God, whoever did my intake said this kid needs to go to like a special unit, like something's wrong. And as I'm in there, they leave me for a few hours and a nurse finds me having seizures coming a foot off the ground. My head was busted open. I was covered and just, it was a mess. And sadly, in situations like that, a lot of the times people don't want to do that kind of paperwork. But this nurse did. Um. This nurse called an ambulance. They rushed me to the emergency room, and I woke up shackled to the bed with them giving me a catheter four days later. It took me months to be able to walk, um, to be able to speak coherently, to be able to eat again. I had no idea the toll that that took on my body. And the crazy part was, even after coming out of that, I still wanted more.
1: Mm.
2: I still wanted more. So, I'd say that's when I knew. That's yeah. when I knew there was a problem. Um, but it was too late at that time to do anything about it. So, that was 2007. You find yourself
3: at that point in prison, right?
2: Yep. And
3: Would you mind kind of just explaining to us what the prison experience was like for you?
2: Ooh. It's almost one of those things where, unless you've been through it, it's extremely hard to try to understand or comprehend Mm. Um, like movies, TV shows don't do it justice. There's just this different level of understanding once you've been in it.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Like there's part of me that wants to say that going into it, I was terrified, but the reality of it is the way that I was living previous to that happening, it was inevitable. Mm. Um, I was almost numb to it. And whether it be the drugs, whether it be my dad, whether it be just the way I was raised it was almost as if I had to turn off every other emotion and just focus on surviving oh. um, unfortunately when when I went in I was considered a youthful offender. How old were you? 17 okay Unfortunately, youthful offenders and anyone who's hearing this that's in prison already knows um, before I say it but they don't get sent to the best prisons in the world. They're not incentivized places. They're not privatized. They call them gladiator schools. Mm. And where I went was definitely one of those, you know, and, and it didn't help that, you know, I wasn't in a gang, never been to prison before. I mean, by any standard, I was considered green, but I wasn't, I was still a man, you know, and as far as I was concerned, that place was my home. And if anybody came into my home and disrespected me, had to do like whatever it took to not allow that to happen. And sadly, it's not the type of world where you fight with somebody and then it's over. It's a world inside of a world. And and it's sad. It's sad that it's like that. Um but the reality of it, of it is is a lot of people didn't make it through that. Whether it was physically, whether it was mentally, whether it was spiritually, emotionally, I mean there are people who I watched crumble from the inside out. It's one of those things where you get so accustomed to the darkness of the world to where if you see any glimmer, any glimpse of light, it gives you more peace than you can possibly understand. There's something to be said about waking up next to another person in there with little to no hope and rolling over and knowing that that person is in the exact same situation I am in. And if that person can keep a positive attitude and joke about something, then I can push through another day and keep a positive attitude and joke about something. You don't find that everywhere. So at
1: 17, you go to prison, you were battling with addiction. Did they provide any help for you to overcome that addiction?
2: If they did, I have no idea about it. (laughs) Um, For me, it it was more along the lines of, I never wanted to be in a situation where I could not intelligibly defend myself. Do I wish that I was working a program in there and kind of knew how bad this could have got or maybe the freedom that was offered through that? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I wish I did. But in my mind, I had a bunch of time to do, and that time was going to be the catalyst for me getting free from addiction. So it was almost as if I put that on the back burner. Mm. Like, you know, after I get out of here, I'm I'm good. Like, it's over. You know, I've made all these changes. I've done all this stuff. I've yeah. I've studied. I have great people in my life. Like, I'm never going to struggle with this again. That wasn't the case. All right. I want to put a pin in that
1: thought right there about the ongoing struggle. Okay. And we're going to come back to it in a minute. But you talked about there being a sliver of hope. And when you saw those little positive moments and you have the camaraderie, you know, I I did time, not as much time. I spent two and a half years inside. You actually can build some, it's weird to call it friendships. But when you, when you're in those moments and there's some guys, you're going through the same thing, you build that camaraderie and you find something to laugh about, but then you have programs like Timothy's gift that come in. So I want to fast forward some from 2007 when you started your time, when was your first experience with Timothy's
2: gift? It was a few years prior to me getting out. Um... I wish I could tell you the exact date. I'm sure Department of Corrections could check my confinement history and pull up the week I got out.
3: <laughs> wait, wait, so, wait. So I need like to understand there. that part.
2: So, I was not always the model inmate, sadly. Okay. I wish I could say that I was the guy that, you know, got up and sang and just smiled and had no issues at all, but that's not that's not the truth. But before um before I finally saw Timothy's gift for the first time, I I really didn't know much about him. I had known Tim, but I'd got transferred over to a work camp, um, which meant that you were essentially transitioning in back into society within the next 10 to 15 years. Um, you went out the gate, worked, you know, different kinds of jobs. Um, but I, I didn't really like asking my family for much and I didn't like going without, um, So what I was doing is I was getting stuff in that I could sell um, to make money. And for me, it was just a normal thing. Like, this is what I have to do to survive. And long story short, I had just got something in and ended up coming back from the kitchen, which was where I was working, and went to lay down for a second. And they come in, bust through the door, and they say, shakedown. Some other stuff unanticipated happened. And... Lo and behold, uh, they start searching the dorm. Well, I went to an officer that kind of knew what I was into. And I told him, I was like, man, listen, I'll give you cash if you can go to my locker right now and get this stuff out so I don't go to confinement. And and he did. He ended up going and get in and out. And he got caught doing it. Now, it's weird how things come full circle because... The lieutenant who arrest, like locked me up, put me into confinement, I ended up through all this getting the chance to reconnect with him. Hmm. And it's interesting that that point, from the way I was living, turned into the catalyst that has me here right now. To be able to go up to him and say, hey, I, I was the guy that you locked up at Sumter for establishing a relationship with an officer um, who ended up getting stuff out of my locker. And that moment saved my life, whether it wasn't, you know, direct in that moment, indirectly that moment saved my life because what it did is, is it, it, crossed my path with, with Timothy's gift with Ron, um, and with Tim and, and ultimately with God, I got out of confinement by lying, which anybody else would have been transferred you know, it's just one of those situations where they knew me for years and I had sang at talent shows and all that good stuff. And, you know, I was always studying and programs, whatever the case is. And um, I lied my way out of confinement. And when I got out, I, I was in a dorm away from a bunch of people. And, you know, I just just not the dorm you want to be in. Okay. Um, And they invited me to church and that was not a place you would have ever caught me in your wildest dreams. And I remember going up there and the place was packed. Um, I think the rec yard was, was shut down so nobody could go outside. So you're kind of like forced to do that if you wanted to get out of the dorm. (laughs) Um, So I show up just being bored. They're like, there's going to be good music. Just come up and hang out with us, you know? And I remember walking with them up there and they're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking and, you know, they're telling me about God and Jesus and, I just looked at him and I was like, man, the only way I believe in this is if baby Jesus himself comes down and slaps me in the mouth of the Bible. And we walk into that church and there's this little old lady sitting at the front and I'm sitting with everybody. The place is packed. She's got her head down and a mic and her back's not like she's not even tor- turned towards us. But she just says, she says, fourth row, left side, second person over. She said, God has a plan for your life. And I remember looking at them so mad because I'm like, I know you put this little crazy old lady up to this. You had to, <laughs> wow. there's no way like this could be happening. So the whole time I'm like, this is cute. This is adorable. Like very sweet of you to do. Thanks, Miss Betty, the prophetess. <laughs> and they're looking at me. They're like, Josh, we didn't, we didn't do this. And at the end of the service, um, I go up to her and I tell her, I was like, man, I, I really appreciate you saying that, you know, obviously you don't know me, you know, my friends put you up to it. I'm sorry about them, but this just isn't going to happen. Then she grabbed my hands and started telling me things that that not a soul on this earth could have known. I don't know what changed, but um, I know something did. I'm in mean, a few weeks pass, and they were talking about this ministry, Timothy's Gift, coming in. And i had played sports with all these guys. i played sports with them. They conned me into going. <laughs> And I walked in there and just really standoffish to this whole thing. And I just saw these amazing musicians playing and talking to us. Like I didn't feel like they looked at me with judgment or pity. I just felt like they loved me. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even know me. And me being a musician, man, I fell in love. It wasn't a few weeks later where I, I ended up getting the chance to meet Ron. Through him coming in with another ministry and just The way everything transpired, there's nobody today who could tell me that God doesn't exist. Nobody. Not a thing could happen to me right now that would convince me otherwise. And I think in that moment, I somehow became a part of Timothy's gift. It happened long before I ever got the chance to get up and play with him. That's powerful. Yeah. I mean, baby
1: Jesus himself came down and slapped you in the face with the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Now, Melinda,
3: is that the tour that you were on, or is that before? Y'all didn't meet on that time? I feel like we didn't meet on that time because okay. my my first time meeting JC, he sang. Okay. And I, they told me that a guy was going to be singing, and I this was all so new to me that I was like, dude do we know, can he, um, (laughs) is he like, what do we know about this? And they were just like, it's going to be a great experience and you're going to love it. And Ron, basically when Ron says something's going to be great, I mean, I just trust that. And I'm like, great. Awesome. I'm in. And I just remember him coming up to sing and me being like, are you kidding me right now? Is I." The voice was powerful. There was not a dry eye on stage or in the mm-hmm. house. There, it was for me. It was why why we were there. Like that, yeah. it it made me not want to sing another song. I was like, we've this is this is why I came here. Do either of you,
1: remember the song that you sang, JC? Shaking your head, yes.
2: It was a song um, that I wrote while I was in confinement.
1: Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I remember they had this, like, prison visitation experience thing where, God, I don't know, 75 or 80 volunteers came in and... I think it was myself, Tim, and a few other guys that we were real close with had the chance to go up to this visitation park. And you say the people – it was Timothy's
1: Gift people came
2: in. Yeah, it was just – it was volunteers who had been a part of this and who had heard about it and obviously the musicians and everything. And they just wanted to come see what it was about. So I don't know how Ron pulled it off to get that many volunteers come in, but (laughs) – Ron can do the miraculous. I mean, they – They just flooded the visitation park. It was ridiculous. You would have thought a compound visitation service was going on. And they had pizza, which was great, because I hadn't had pizza in like (laughs) 10 years.
3: I forgot about that.
2: Um, They came in. They loved on this. We had the chance to meet everybody. And somehow I I talked to Melissa, who was a part of it, and Mm -hmm. she found out that I sang. And... She asked Tim, she was like, do you think he would be all right if we called him for him to go up there? And Tim said something along the lines of, he's a ham. He would definitely be fine. (laughs) We just got to worry about his head blowing up bigger than it already is. (laughs) But we get a little way through the service and they asked me to come up. I remember like seeing the officers looking at me, you know, like, who is this? Who is this kid? Like, why are they calling him up? What in the world is going on? And I remember getting up there and grabbing the guitar, and I was just shaking. I was so nervous. And I just closed my eyes, and I think that was probably the first time I ever prayed. And I just started to play. And I remember looking out at the end, and everybody standing up. And if you know anything about inmates, they are a hard crowd to win over. Mm -hmm. But I remember looking at people's faces— and I saw hope. And I don't know if it was just God's way of speaking through music or or what, but I know people were touched that day. I wish I knew what seed it planted and how it's being watered right now, but I knew that like in that moment, God specifically allowed the things to happen in my life for that to transpire.
1: Hmm.
2: And I see that today in a lot of things that— have happened recently and, you know, just, just situations that have occurred. God has allowed for certain elements of pain to take place so I could be strong enough to be there for others. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity to say that because I know of a lot of people who, who sadly don't have that, that chance. So you became a part of the Timothy's gift family
1: through all of that while you were inside?
3: Oh, I would just also like to add that at the end of that night, when we got to talk to you, one of the things that you told us was, I'm gonna get out of here and I'm gonna sing with y'all. And that is something that stuck with me ever since. It just has. And so to, to automatically know that you were part of our family, was huge. But also to see it happen, I... Because he said that in 2014.
1: 2014. Fast forward seven years, it's 2021. You have gotten out of prison. Did you get out in 21? I got out in 2019. If my memory is right, well, why don't you just... Who was there when you got out?
2: Um, both my grandparents, my aunt, and... Ron, Shelley and Carol Bruce Cigar from Timothy's Gift. So
1: your family was there. Your grandparents, your aunt, and your Timothy's Gift family. The family that mattered was there. Mm. Two years later, 2021, you go on tour with Timothy's Gift. And that's the year you and I met, because it was my first time going on tour with Timothy's Gift also. And man, you, I, I was amazed by you and a little jealous because you have this charisma I and mean. this, this swagger, and <laughs> I am just this super awkward old guy. But you, you just have that little that it factor. You know, a lot of times you just you have this confidence. Now I don't. Have you always been confident?
2: I don't know if it's a confidence thing or I just don't really care. Like I'm, I'm me.
1: <laughs> See, to me that's confidence that's confidence <laughs> because I care too yeah. much. <laughs> so, yeah. But there was a time. In each of the services that we did, the programs that we did with Timothy's Gift that week, were, one, you came up and you just cut, you, you, what you, con what'd you say? Did you
3: guys Kanye West me or whatever? Yeah, he he would Kanye West you because you didn't introduce him. Yeah. Shelly forgot to
2: introduce you. Yeah. Shelly forgot to introduce me and I came up. And grabbed the mic from her. And this was right after the Kanye West stole it from Taylor Swift okay. mic incident. And I told her, I was like, girl, I will Kanye West you so quick. <laughs> I was like, I am the second most important person on this tour next to Jesus. So y'all, <laughs> y'all are going to talk about me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is JC, right? There. Yes.
1: It just And people laughed and it broke. It helped break down the barriers. I mean, it was a planned moment kind of with, with Shelly, but it was... Man, you are you getting up there like that, getting the guys laughing, and it just helped with that connection with the guys who were in each service. But then later you came up and really hit them hard because at that point, they don't know that you're JC, a former inmate. They just know you're a part of the Timothy's Gift family along for this tour. Yeah. And then you get to come up later on and you sing a song and you get to share I mean, the fact that you get it. I do. You know what it's like to be sitting in a blue uniform, watching this group, and then go back to your dorm or whatever else. I mean, what was that like, standing on a stage the first time as a free person, sharing a message through song and through just your testimony with guys who were still in prison? That's a good question. That's why I asked it.
2: (laughs) It felt right. It felt like I belonged. Um, it just, there's a sense of purpose that I just can't articulate because it, it, it is obviously amazing when people come in and put on a concert for guys that don't have the chance to go out for a concert. Um, that is an incredible thing in and of itself. But when somebody comes back through those fences mm-hmm. that has been there, those guys look at that and they see, they see something different. You know, I, I I get it. I get where people are like, oh, it's scary going into prisons, you know, like, I, or, or I get nervous or whatever the case is. It, it's It's different when you've been there. Like, I'm knowingly going back into this place when for years the only thing I could possibly think of about was I want to be out of here. But to be able to come back in and, like, and talk to those guys and say, I get it. I get it. There's a level of connection there. I think the most
1: meaningful moment for you, if I can, if I could select for you, I mean, I'm not you, we went to Sumter, the place where you saw Timothy's gift for the first time and where you became a part of the Timothy's gift family. And you got to share your story in front of those guys and some of them who knew you. I mean, you walked in and man, it's JC. You had to feel good about that and proud of that moment. And we were proud for you and with you. But I'll never forget that night, standing on the front at the very end, me, you, and Tim. Three guys who had been locked up. And we stood there in front of those guys, and we had them all repeat after us because they knew we got it, those four truths of Timothy's gift, and had them own it. And he said, instead of saying, you are loved, I want you to say, I am loved. And those guys, they all start, as they were repeating afterwards, they were like beating their chest and standing up saying, I am loved. I have great worth. God loves me. I am not for – and it was one of the most – I get chills thinking about because that, that was one of the most significant moments of anything I've done with Timothy's gift at Sumter right there because the tone had been set because Tim was there who had done time. It was the first time he had gone back. You had done time there, first time you had gone back there. And you guys going back, man, it was powerful for them to see you two doing all right on the outside and going back with a ministry to tell those guys, I love you. God loves you. So, man, I'm proud of you for going back in there and doing that.
2: I had to do that. Um. I'm grateful I got the chance to do that because there were a lot of events leading up to that to where there's probably no reason that I should have been alive to be able to be afforded that opportunity. Um, and it's interesting that, that as I walked through the gates and saw officers that I knew and hundreds of guys that I did years with, one of the guys came and asked me a question, and I'll never forget it. And he was like, how hard was it for you to come back in here? And I remember looking at him. I said, it's going to be harder to leave. It's going to be harder to leave. I knew what was expected in there. You know, um, I thrived in there I grew up there. And something, man, came over me. Like, I don't, I don't know when I played at the end of that. But it went from like where this all started to where it's finally come. But the pain and things that happened in between in that moment were all worth it because I could pour it out to them. And I didn't have to say a word, they knew what I was saying. From what I was singing, I broke down crying. Broke down. It was probably one of the most fulfilling experiences I've ever had.
3: You were mentioning that a lot transpired between you getting out of prison and going back with Timothy Skift. What do you mean by that? what What has life been like after getting out of prison?
2: I guess the best way to approach it would say what it was like right before I got out.
3: Okay.
2: Um, So I was fortunate enough to get into a work release program, um, which is basically, you know, you have an ankle monitor, GPS on you. It's right before you transition into society and you're able to work a real job. Well, luckily for me, I had taken advantage of some education opportunities while I was incarcerated, um, landed a job um, in a design engineering firm, make, like creating industrial air conditioners, it, it was amazing. But I was making really, really good money in work release. And the day I got released, I had this, this check and all these plans of what I was going to do. And it sounded really great in my head. You know, my family was really excited and, and all these other things. But before I had gotten out, there was this drug that had come around. That I wasn't privy to before I got locked up. And in my head, I was, I was fearful that I would end up using using opiates again. Um, so I justified getting on this medication. And quite literally, the day I got out, I had a prescription already set up in the pharmacy. And it started off small like that. You know, I think we went to, to dinner together and I was like, you know, I can have a drink. Um, I'll be fine. What people didn't realize is the things that happened behind the scenes after that drink, you know, Mm. because I was so good at playing it off in front of y'all. The issue was I couldn't run from me. Mm. Wow. Um, So, you know, one or two drinks out with everybody else celebrating me getting out turned into me going to a liquor store and drinking in my room in the middle of the night. And that's how I celebrated. But I put it on this front, you know, everything's okay. I got it together. And I think part of me genuinely believed I did, but it escalated, uh, you know, I had the doctor writing more and more prescriptions for different things, whether it was for PTSD or pain or anxiety, um, you name it, you name it. And then before long, I was, uh, I was filling out fake police reports um, to get more prescriptions, I was lying to pharmacists. I was going to multiple doctors, doctor shopping. I was doing things that unequivocally could have landed me back. Without any hesitation or regard for the people that loved me or her value for my own life. And it got bad. It got really bad. Um, my family didn't know what to do. Honestly, there's nothing they could have done. But... I remember waking up one day and I was surrounded by all these things. Right? Like I had the car, the watches, the girl, the clothes, the place, um, the job. And I woke up and I realized I was in a worse prison than I had ever been in physically. Wow. I'll never forget that. Never. Um, But obviously that wasn't enough. Right? Like... I can figure it out. I can think my way through this. If there's a solution, I'm, I'm going to solve it. And I kept trying to do it by myself. And it almost killed me a few times. I ended up crashing and burning. The company I worked for put me through treatment multiple times. Um, That wasn't enough. And it just got really, really bad. And my own family even like stepped away. I was like, we don't we don't know what to do, other than love you from afar. So I, I did the only thing I could f- figure at the time, and I, I, I called Ron, and without hesitation, he was there, brought me up here, did everything he could to to try to get you know the Barons back in my life and be supportive and and love me through the disease of addiction. Um, but even that. You know, it, it just wasn't enough. And it, it's not that, it's not of out of his lack of love or inability or my family's lack of love or inability. Mm-hmm. It was out of the lack of the pain had not gotten great enough for me to want to do something different, for me.
1: Mm.
2: Because I had I kept trying to do it for all these external reasons. It, it was never because I valued myself. Wow. Um, and they brought me to a treatment facility, uh, long story short, they, they said I was one of the worst detoxes they had seen in 15 years. This is a a real prestigious place up here. Um, essentially I had to relearn how to walk and talk again. The doctor came into the room after I got back from the ER, he had been doing this for 30 years, um, sat beside my bed with tears in his eyes and, you know, told me, he's like, kid, you're going to die. Like, I don't. I don't come here on my time off to talk to people like you're, you're going to die. Hmm. And the day I got out of that treatment center, I relapsed. It, it, it's really, really crazy how it all works, but I kept trying, you know, like I, I never got to a point where I was like, I give up. Like, I'm not going to try to rebuild what's been broken. Like hmm. I've come too far. There's a reason why I'm here still. Um, and granted, I needed little nudges along the way. I I needed, you know, support from people, but the right people showed up at the right times and loved me until I could learn to love myself. And one of the most instrumental things for me was this most recent time. It was, it was bad. And obviously with ad as addicts, I will continue to dig a bigger hole for myself Because I always think that I can dig a little bit deeper than the last time, right? Like I can use a little bit more. I can lie a little bit more. I can cheat a little bit more. I can deceive people a little bit more. And some people that have become like family to me ended up um, wanting to stage this intervention. And they were going to send these goon squad of guys to the house. And I was so far gone. You know, there's... There's people that that definitely know where I was at. But this lady who has become like a mom to me in this recovery program went above their head, bypassed it because they she knew I was out of my mind. And if these guys showed up at the house, it was going to be horrible. And she showed up. And I remember, not much, but I remember this. I remember sitting on the bed with her. And I started to tell her, I was like, don't you realize I love you? Like, I, I'd i kill for you. Like, I would die for you. And she looked at me and she said, baby, we know. Will you live for us? Mm. I wish I could say that, like, I've done things perfectly from that point on. But the reality is I haven't. And I'm forced to live by a set of principles today that are different. And one of those principles is honesty. Um, not because I want to but because my life depends on it. yeah, That's one of the hardest things is trying to make that transition. When you've lived away for so long that that's all you know, that it becomes second nature. But when you start getting people into your life that genuinely love you for you, something shifts to where you don't see a motive behind why this person's loving you. You can't figure out where the manipulation is at. Like what's in it for them, Right. Because they can't love me for me. Hell, I don't love me for me. But something happens that's just unexplainable, and the pain got great enough. Mm. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be pain anymore. Um, Doesn't mean that this process isn't going to hurt. But the pain got great enough for me to want to do something different for me. Um, And if it hadn't, I don't think I'd be here right now.
1: So what does that something different look like for you today?
2: It looks like me showing up even when I don't want to, because I have to in order to live. It's almost a competitive advantage because today I'm forced to live by these principles because my life does depend on it. Um, and three of the principles are honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. If I, for whatever reason, slack on any of these, I lose every bit of serenity I possibly could have gained throughout the process. I lose peace. I lose myself. I lose the ones around me. I throw everything I've worked for down the drain. And just for today, I'm not willing to risk that. So for clarity, you are in a, you're in a program now.
3: Yeah.
1: And you are clean and sober. Yep. How long has it been? Coming up on one year. Dude, that's great, JC. And I'm proud of you, buddy. I know how big that is for you. Well, I think I do. Only you know fully the real battle that you have fought. But just from the outside watching, that's a big deal for you. And I am so daggum proud of you, man. And now you're helping other guys through it too, right?
2: I'm definitely trying. It's hard when when you want somebody to get it so bad. And you think you can talk sense into them or relate their love on them. And it just doesn't click. Yeah. I wondered all those years, like, what my family must have felt like. Mm. I remember, like, my first week, I spoke to my grandmother, and something had, had shifted in her voice. And she told me it had been the first time she got a good night's sleep in months, knowing that I was safe. Wow. And I understand that kind of love right now. I get it. Because you're trying to walk with some other guys.
1: It's tough when you love somebody, but you also have to balance the fact that you're not responsible for their decisions. Walking with people, how do you maintain that balance or have you been able to find that
2: balance? I'm still working on it. Yeah. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that I can't trust my own thinking. I just can't. There's something inside of me that tells me I'm terminally unique and that I can do things differently than the next person. And I will completely discard the advice of someone who's already lived through it because I think there's a better way. Hmm. What I've found is that the easier, softer way is to reach out to those who've experienced it and just take suggestion. Don't think, just do. It's a very simple thing that I am able to make very, very complicated, but somehow I just keep coming back and that's a saying in the rooms that I used to get annoyed hearing them say, keep coming back, no matter what, keep coming back. When you see the light switch flip for somebody that you care about and love, who's struggling with this thing, there's nothing like it in the world. Today I'm able to show up for people who have loved me through this thing, who've been there for me every step of the way, who didn't give up. And I'm even able to show up for those people who, who weren't there at all, but I'm able to be there for them because they don't have anyone else. I wouldn't trade what's happened for anything. There's a lot of stuff that, especially over the past two, three weeks, I wish would have been different. But I genuinely know that God's plan is better than mine. Hmm. Whether I agree with it all the time is a different, different thing, but I know His plan is definitely better than mine, and I know the other people that I have in my life today as a voice of reason have better advice than I can give myself. And I'm learning how to trust that because trust for me is not um, not something that comes easy. It sounds to me like the lady in Sumter
1: with her back turned to you, saying fourth row back, second seat in. Kind of knew what she was talking about. God had a plan for you way back then. And now you get to see it being lived out and we get to see it being lived out and walk it with you. And that's a pretty incredible thing to think about, how God has been working in your life all this time for you to be able to sit in that chair to share your story for who knows how many and who will hear it and be like, I get that. That's what that feeling is inside. That's the pain hurting enough. If he can do it with all the stuff he went through, I can do it.
3: One question that we are trying to wrap up each podcast with is... um Just stressing the four tenets that Timothy's gift takes into any facility that we go into. And those four tenets are, you are loved, you have great worth, God is with you, and you are not forgotten. And if you right now are thinking of those four tenets, is there one that resonates with you the most in this moment in life?
2: 100% you're loved. And I'm really grateful that it's the first one that's, that's said. Um, because it's the first thing that people who've been through these type of situations need to hear. It goes back to when I couldn't love myself or wasn't afforded the love by the people who I felt, quote-unquote, should have been there and loved me. This group showed up, and it started from that. I'm able to love myself today Because a group of strangers decided in their heart that they wanted to come in and put on a concert for guys that didn't deserve it. And they told me I was loved. They made me feel loved. But more importantly than that, they showed me I was loved. Through their actions and not just their words. There is no reason other than that love as to why I'm sitting here right now alive none.
1: Our brother JC has been through it. He finally reached this pain level where it hurt so bad he was finally willing to give it up and make the changes that needed to happen. It's been a journey. It's been a struggle. But we are so proud of him. And some of you are right now in the middle of that journey, and we want you to hear this. You are loved. You have great worth. God is with you, and you are not forgotten. Make today the first step of your journey to freedom from the addiction that has grasped your heart. Take that next step
0: now. Thanks for listening to the Next Step Now podcast. This podcast is a product of Timothy's Gift Prison Outreach, a Christian community taking hope into prisons since 2009. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at timothysgift.com or write us at P.O. Box 111642, Nashville, Tennessee 37222.